This evening, uh, I want to speak to you about not-self, a doctrine which in Buddhism or a particular aspect of the Dharma, which is usually referred to as anatta. But before I get to that, I want to kind of give again, as I did the other night, a little preamble about why this is important. Remember what I was saying way back then, Monday night, it seems a long time ago. Uh, on Monday evening, I was talking about the vipalasas, the distortions of perception, and one of the distortions of perception that we engage in is mistaking things as being self, which were really not self, along with you know, mistaking things, for example, that are changing as to be permanent, looking for the beautiful in the unbeautiful, and looking for pleasure in pain. Yeah. So these are the vipalasas. When we go right back to one primary list that we find in the Dharma, we find a very similar list to the one that we have in the vipalasas, in the distortions of perception, but excluding one dimension, which is the dimension of the looking for the beautiful and that which isn't beautiful. And this list is usually known as the, the three characteristics. The three characteristics of existence. The three characteristics of existence are impermanence, dukkha, and not-self. You can see the overlap here with the distortions of perception. Now, I'm not going to talk about the impermanence aspect or the dukkha aspect, other than saying... Of course, this is actually fundamental to the process of waking up. Because actually, when we ask the question, well, what exactly are we waking up to? What is this, if you like, shaking the fantasy? And the fantasy is really, in many senses, conveyed by those four distortions of perception. What are we waking up to? Well, what we're actually gaining insight and waking up to are these three characteristics. That things are impermanent. Really important. You know, really easy to understand, isn't it? And I think many of us sitting up in the front here giving these talks will say to you something like, well, impermanence is really easy to understand. It's really difficult to live, though. Very, very difficult to live, isn't it? You know, we sagely nod our heads and go, yes, everything is impermanent. Who broke my pen? <laughs> yeah. Or, yes, I know everything is going to pass away and all things are going to die. There's a little voice inside going, not me. <laughs> I've got an exclusion clause <laughs> in my contract. Um, so impermanence is one of these features that we're waking up to. It's so important, in fact, I'll just mention this very briefly, it's so important, in fact, that the Buddha, in his so-called final reported words, actually says this. You know, he says, you, know, you might expect a big dispensation at the end of his life. He's taught for 45 years. He gives basically a one-liner at the end of his life. You know, he says, absolutely everything you're going to encounter is impermanent. Now get on with it. He said, it's a bit, it's, you can translate it a bit more elegantly. It goes something like this. All compounded phenomena are impermanent. Strive on diligently. There's the word that Chris was using last night. 
you know, basically saying, now you've got to get on with the job of life, get on engaging with it. So this is one of the important facets that we're waking up to. We're waking up to the fantasy of permanence in an impermanent universe, in an impermanent world. Dukkha is inescapable. This is the other thing. Yeah. We are all of us. You know, as I said the other night, without wishing to repeat myself too much, as I said the other night, um, Dukkha is inescapable because all of us at some point in time are going to get sick. We're all going to lose a loved one at some point in time. We're all actually going to die ourselves. And then there is the, the, the things that don't occur in your life the way that you want them to. You know, how life unfolds and it doesn't always follow the, uh, the path you want it, wants it to. You know, you know, have you noticed this? How life has a way of not quite conforming to the way you want it to. It unfolds in a completely different way quite often. You know, we can get knocked off course quite easily here. So dukkha is another inescapable fact. When the Buddha speaks about the cessation of dukkha, he is not being unrealistic, as I spoke about the other evening. He's not being unrealistic and saying that actually, you know, you're not going to get sick, you're not going to get old, and you're not going to die if you follow this path. This is nonsense. Uh, he's very, very realist about this, and I gave you that instance of him joking about his own decrepitude. He's actually sick quite a lot of his life as he moves around India for this 45 years on foot teaching. He's born in the open and he dies in the open. You know, he doesn't live a settled life whatsoever. So dukkha is inescapable, but there are dukkhas that we can deal with. And I spoke, and I spoke about that a little bit the other night. And then we come to the, the, the kind of thorny issue of not-self, which I sort of skated over, um, partly through time um, restrictions on Monday night, but there's whole, this whole notion of not-self. And the question is, really, um, who do we think we are? Yeah. Or how do we think we are? Yeah, this is really at the heart of it. How do we think we exist in this world as a self? What is this self? What is it that seems to be so present and so actually counterintuitive almost, isn't it, when we start talking about not-self? The Buddha is speaking about so much of our experience as being not-self. In fact, all of our experience as being not-self. Not having something in the heart of it which we believe to be there and actually attach so much importance to um, in our day-to-day lives. We live in a highly individualistic culture and that individualism is echoed in our language and our cultural structures not every culture has the same thing. You, you learn some Asian languages, and some Asian languages have a different inflected notion of the, of the self here. The self that the Buddha is speaking about in his time is very, very specific, but I think it still has very important resonances for our practice today and for actually how we think we are in this world. So this is the issue, again, that we're waking up to. Now, I'm going to issue a corrective here, because often in popular books on Buddhism, you stumble across the idea that there is no self. This is just plainly wrong. In fact, the Buddha is not actually interested in questions which are basically philosophical questions, which is, is there a self or isn't there a self? 
You know, actually, it actually goes against one of his main ideas, which is the idea of eternalism, something always is, which is actually partly tied up with the notion of a perpetual, permanent sense of self, or that it doesn't really exist at all, which is no self. Um, I think it's, very, it's, a, it's a dangerous idea, the idea of no self, um, it leads to lack of ethical and moral responsibility, for one thing. And in fact, the Buddha in his own teaching, it says better to teach the notion of a self than to teach the idea that there is no such thing as a self. Because it leads to irresponsibility. It leads to no ethical commitment, no moral commitment in our lives. And this is very, very important. As I was saying to a group earlier on today, that when we look at mindfulness which is obviously the reason why you're here. But when we look at mindfulness, mindfulness only forms one part of the strategy that the Buddha is teaching. You know, it's not the be-all and end-all of his teaching. It's an extremely important strategy. In fact, I did a word search on it in the Pali Canon, and you find that there are more mentions of the word sati, which is the word we translate as mindfulness, than any other technical term in the whole of the Pali Canon. So it's clearly extremely important to what he's having to say. But it takes its place within other strategies, which are extremely important. Strategies particularly around, about, around the way that we live in this world, you know, around our morals and our ethics, how we are with others. I mean, you've probably noticed there's like irritating others out there you know, who we have to live with. And you know, the Buddha is saying, well, we have to live with people and we have to live in a way that's conducive to some degree of harmony. One thing that's not going to add to harmony, he thinks, and I want to explore this with you this evening, is the notion of a strong sense of self which would lead to something that we might term selfishness. Being full of yourself. Yeah. This is the problem. Now, I've kind of dismissed the notion of what I call the philosophy. Well, the Buddha's teaching on not-self is not a philosophical position. Let me make this really, really clear. It's a practical teaching. It's a practical teaching. All too often I see it kind of shading off into complex philosophical discussions about the nature of the ontology behind the sense of self. This is not what he was doing. He was teaching something extremely practical, Um, that should have a real impact on your ways of living, our ways of being in the world, as I've said. So this is what he's trying to do. In particular, he has one question. Without dismissing the notion of the self, his question is, how does this thing, process that we call the self, how does it operate? How does it work? That's his question. He's not asking what is the self, he's asking how is the self. Reframing my kind of thing about who do you think you are, it's really how do you think you are? How do you manifest in this world? What is going on psychologically that manifests this sense of self in the world that seems to predominate in so much of our experience, doesn't it? It's there in the centre of our experience. It's there clearly, for example, when we're angry. 
when we're desiring something. In fact, I would probably go as far as to say that's probably the most you're yourself, when you're liking something and disliking it. You know, this is when yourself really manifests. You feel it almost... Well, you do feel it physically, don't you? You feel it as the tightness in the gut. You feel it as the, the not there, the tension in the shoulders. Everything is kind of screaming self in this moment in time when these things happen. It becomes really manifest in those difficult situations when the world isn't going the way, you know, isn't conforming to the way you want it, when people are not doing the things that you want them to. You know, have you noticed that as well, that people don't often do the things you want them to do, they do something else. Um, and then you're going, no! <laughs> and there's yourself, there again. So the self is considered for, to the Buddha as a problem. Now I just want to very briefly historically contextualise this. Because what the Buddha is arguing against is not the notion of a self, but the notion of an unchanging self. This is what he's arguing against. In ancient India, the India of the Buddha's time, um, some of you might know this, there was a kind of set of literature that was just starting to grow up. Some of it, a few texts of it actually predate the Buddha by about 100, 200 years. And these are known as Upanishads. Yeah. The Upanishads, um, classics of Hindu literature. Um, there are two texts in particular that the Buddha was very, very familiar with. You know, I say text, these would have been oral in the Buddha's time, because most of ancient India was an oral culture. These two texts are something called the Brihadaranyaka, which is a, a text which is literally written in the forest, uh, Aranyaka is, is a forest in Sanskrit. And there's something called the Chandogya Upanishad. In both of these, and this is the only point I really want to make about this, in both of these we get the idea of an unchanging self. We get the idea that's occurring in here also of reincarnation yeah, in these early texts. The idea that something goes from birth to birth to birth, and it's the same thing. It's, if you like, the real me, the real you. It's like a little package with John stamped on it that goes from lifetime to lifetime. I call it the bouncing ball theory. <laughs> you know, it sort of bounces along from lifetime to lifetime until it gets liberation or moksha. I'm parodying a little bit here, but this is basically the ideas that you find there. This self is unchanging. It's indestructible. It's not with, encountered within space and time. It's a metaphysical self, if nothing else. And this leads to actually some very dubious ethics uh, later on in um, the development of Indian culture. In a text that many of you might know, something called the Bhagavad Gita, you find the notion, for example, when Arjuna is trying to be persuaded by Krishna to fight his relatives in basically what is a civil war, He's told this little piece of information. If you think you are killed or you kill, you are mistaken. Because the real self is indestructible. The real self is neither born nor does it die. Yeah. You can see where the du dubious ethics lies in there. You know, it's kind of basically a good thing because you can't kill the real person. I'm only killing the phenomenal person. Yeah. 
Very dubious as a piece of ethics here. This is what specifically what the Buddha was arguing against. This is what he sets his stall out against when he's talking about not-self. Now, I don't think that too many of us have that idea these days, but we certainly have a feeling, what I call a much more emotional feeling, about who we are. And who we are seems to have a degree of permanence. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed this? Because you know, I can remember, for example, aspects of my childhood... I can remember you know, dimensions of my teenage years. I can remember traveling to India at the age of 17. I remember living there, going backwards and forwards, you know, all the way through to going to university, doing degrees and all the rest of it. And I can remember some aspects of what I did last week. <laughs> Not a lot. <laughs> uh, so we have this sense of Something which is unique traveling through, if you like, through time. Something which is unchanging. So it might not be that full-blown Upanishadic idea of a self, but we have this idea of a controller, something in control, something which has, for example, individuation, has identity. You know, it's the same me. Do you feel this? The same me that was there back in my teenage years as the me now? This is the problem that we're, in a sense, dealing with and that what the Buddha is trying to address. Because what we have there is a very strong, reified sense of self that is within our experience. It might not be that Upanishadic self, which is within the historical context of the Buddha's time, but we often have that strong sense of self and certainly of identity. And in fact, this is one of the big problems often with ordinary life, isn't it? We're in search of identity. We try to create identities out of all kinds of things, you know, to say, this is who I am. In fact, that's a common piece of English often. And I gather when speaking with other people, other Europeans, I was speaking to some people in Denmark last week, that even they have the phrase, this is how I am, this is me. These are the kinds of phrases that we use, which kind of state identity. And we're often in search of that identity, wanting to create and sustain our identities. Uh, Identities can be created out of all sorts of things, and I think we see this. We see this, for example, in identities created out of professions. What you do. I am what I do. Another big confusion that has often gone on I think is one that's particularly here, often in the contemporary Western world, is I am what I have. Acquisition, materiality, status, power, wealth. Even failure can also be a sense of identity. This is who I am. I'm someone who fails. I can even be a bunch of symptoms. This is who I am. I am my symptoms. My illness, my disease, my mental health problem, whatever it is. There is definitely an attempt um, by us to often establish the sense of identity. To see ourselves as a thing. To see ourselves as an unchanging (coughs) thing. Things might change on the peripheries. You know, relationships might change, I certainly age, but underneath it all I'm still the same person. 
Yeah. I'm still the same individual underlying all that. Um, in a way, it's an attempt to evade our freedom. You know, Jean-Paul Sartre, in, in his Being and Nothingness, had this basic idea that most human beings wanted to turn themselves into tables and chairs. Yeah. Tables and chairs had a fixed, stable identity. They don't change that much, do they? Unless you take an axe to it or something. Yeah. The table and chair has a very limited range. It might get scratched, but it doesn't change that much. You know, the, as long as it's got four legs on the top, it's still a table and chair. The problem we have with human beings is that we change. You know, this is part of the impermanence again, part of the realism. That self whom we are is a changing phenomenon a changing entity. And actually, I would say this is the good news. Yeah? If you were a thing, like a table or a chair, you might be more stable, uh, but you're stuck with being a table or a chair. And if your essence was something like goodness or badness, you're stuck with being good or bad, and you couldn't really change it. Do you see that? So essentialism, which is actually answering the question of, you know, what is the self? Essentialism is usually the answer to what the self is. The self is usually reduced to something which is unchanging. This this has gone on for millennia. It's not just within Indian culture. It's gone on within all sorts of different cultures. I mean, the most classic formulation of this you'll find in Plato in uh, the Greeks in particular, and Socrates. Socrates, as you possibly know, was the kind of gadfly of Athens. He went round asking people questions. Um, He went to the so-called experts of Athenian society, such as lawyers and soldiers and statesmen and things like this. He went up to them and said, okay, you're a lawyer, tell me what justice is. And then this person would give them, and probably some of you have read these dialogues, the person would give him a number of instances of justice. And Socrates would go to them something like, all you've given me is examples, you still haven't told me what justice is. Because what he's looking for is something, in a sense, which would give him the essence of all forms of justice. the essence of all forms of justice. And he did this uh, with the uh, cross-section of the hierarchy of Athenian society. I mean, no wonder he got the hemlock given to him. He really made himself a pain in the backside to Athenian society of that period. This is not the question that the Buddha is asking. He's not asking what we are or what is this self, is asking, how is it? That leads to a very, very different response. The how is it will give us mechanisms. The how is it question will give us processes. And this is very much what the Buddha is speaking about. He's speaking about the processes that go to make up this notion of self Or if we hear it as a process, a better way of doing it is actually to turn it into a rather ugly English verb form 
and say selfing. Yeah? So rather than self, we get selfing as a process. You know, so how is this selfing? How does it manifest? How, does it, how is it, in a sense, brought into being? Why isn't it conceived of as being something fixed, something eternal, something which is identical all the way through our existence? These are the kind of subsidiary questions that the Buddha is really trying to get us to see. But for very practical reasons, and I hope by the end of this talk, I'll have given you some of the practical reasons why uh, this is so important in this. So, we get the notion, instead of there being something that has a sense of identity, which is the controller of all of our dimensions of life, sitting right there, a bit like the kind of homunculus in the head idea, you know, the little crane driver who's operating everything. The real self is the crane driver who's operating everything that we do. The controller behind everything, the hidden controller. What we get is a series of interactive functions. Basically, we get a list of five different categories, which could perhaps stand in for the notion of the self, and certainly to speak about any notion of selfing without these five functions um, would be actually to do a disservice to our notions of self. And we've encountered one already. You know, we've encountered one in the practices that we're doing. You know, this is actually called the second of the aggregates or the khandhas here. This is Vedana, you know, feeling. Those hedonic tones of pleasant, unpleasant, and neither, which are arising in both body and mind continuously. The first one, though, again, well, you have actually encountered. It's called rupa in, um, in Pali and Sanskrit, which literally means form, the shape of something, and it stands in for anything of materiality. So it stands actually for the body here. You know, any talk about being a self wouldn't make a lot of sense if we didn't include some physicality in it. Yeah. One thing that we might notice why it isn't perhaps a good candidate for being the self, and I don't think anybody would really make this mistake anyway here, but why wouldn't it stand in for a good candidate as being the self? Well, first thing we note is it's not under our control. You know? No matter how well we look after this body, um, it still gets sick. We might look after it extremely well. You know, eat all the right foods, do all the right things, exercise, but you still get sick. Yeah. One other dimension you've probably noticed, I notice every morning, it's called aging. <laughs> you know, look in the mirror. <laughs> Is that me? <laughs> um, you notice the aging process. That's not under your control. Try as you might in California. It's still not under your control. <laughs> yeah. That everything about our physicality is actually outside of our control. We can do our best 
But it really doesn't qualify as being a self because of this lack of being in control of it. And you can say this about most of the other categories as well, in fact, all of the other categories, that none of it is under our control. So what happens if we, kind of, if we did, if we were tempted to hitch our sense of self to physicality, where we're in for a lot of dukkha, aren't we? Yeah? In for, we're opening ourselves up to a lot of dukkha, Dukkha, which is not just the dukkha of getting old and getting sick and getting ill, but the dukkha of frustration of not being in control, no matter how much I try to control this process, that we're not in control of it. So that's the first candidate. The second candidate, and these are five levels of our experience, again, a bit like the Satipatthanas. We're looking at experience through five dimensions, of it. Five actually fundamental dimensions, physicality being one of them. The second dimension that we can look at it, very familiar, I won't talk a lot about it because we've, you know, in a sense we've been doing it, Vedana. But notice something about Vedana as well. That Vedana also is not under our control. No matter how much I might try, there are certain foods that I just go, Bleh. Unpleasant sensation. (laughs) I just cannot get to like them. We can't will ourselves into having a pleasant sensation when it's just, you know, the moment I stick it on my tongue, it's going yuck. And there are all sorts of dimensions of experience which we cannot change, control, in fact, even if we do just a simple body scan or sweep, through the body, we can find that that sensation has changed. Even in the process of going down the body and coming back up the body, it might have changed from, for example, from painful to neutral, from neutral to painful, or to pleasurable here. And we haven't had any say in that. It's just changed. So I won't say anything more about that because we've you know, we had a day of practicing with Vedana, In fact, we don't really move away from it. The third candidate is perception. Perception and discrimination. Making up. You know, I am, in fact, some Western philosophers um, actually took this as the forefront of establishment of being. You know, Um, somebody called um, Bishop Barclay an Irish philosopher, you know, talked about, you know, uh, being was in perception. To be was to be perceived. You know? Or being was established in the moment of perception. You know? Descartes had it with thinking. You know, the establishment of being was through thinking. But this particular candidate is a very interesting one. It's known as sanya. Anything with this kind of nya-nya sound in Pali, actually means to know something. So sanya is about knowing. It's about knowing dimensions of experience. It's about knowing dimensions of the world. It's primarily, its function is to literally to discriminate things 
And so one very important function within that discriminatory process, of course, is language. This is the linguistic capability as well. Language is such an important medium that we dwell in, isn't it? For making all the kind of distinctions around the world, you know, of the world that we do. You know, we go from trees to individual trees, you know, naming them. You know, oak tree, ash tree, elm tree. You know. Notice that we are establishing things in the naming process of doing that. It might be worth adding at this point, of course, that each language um, divides up the world very differently. Yeah. Cuts up the world. Some languages, um, particularly if you start to look even at European languages, some languages will see distinct colours. Other ones will have one word for what in English we might perceive as you know, two different colours. Yeah. They have very different relations with the notion of the self as well. that the self is linguistically established too. One other dimension that I think you probably realise that's extremely important if you're going to use language in discrimination, in, in literally cutting our world up and being able to perceive it, is memory. Hugely important. This is a fundamental function of this dimension of our experience and processes, is the capability to remember things. There's no point in having a piece of language if you can't remember what you applied it to. Is there? I mean, there's absolutely no point whatsoever. In fact, in terms of the notion of a permanent self, this discriminatory function is probably one of the candidates, or the most likely candidate, for, in a sense, creating the sense of identity. And again, I'd let you think about that for a second, because what is going on is, go back to my example of when I was young, I can remember dimensions. Notice what I'm using. I can remember certain dimensions of being age five or six. I can remember dimensions and aspects of my growing up, first going to school, teenage years, the travelling to India, all the things I mentioned in that little example all the way through to the present moment. What have we got there? We've got a series of snapshots, haven't we? The thing that joins them together, rather than being the identical thing that's travelling through time, is the idea that I can remember it. The sense of oneness, the sense of identity, is being created in the remembering of it not in the fact that there is something that is travelling which is the real me through time here so our sense of who we are is so dependent on what we remember now as we all know things drop in and drop out of memory they're dropping in and out of memory all the time As we get older, long-term memory starts to diminish. And if you have a a kind of disaster scenario, we've had this building up of our memories and then the dropping away of them. If we have the disaster scenario of something like dementia and that, 
one of the things that really starts to go very strongly, of course, is memory. In really extreme cases, this is a terrifying experience. People literally don't know who they are because their short-term memory goes and their long-term memory goes as well. So they can't remember who they are in this. Now, this is a good reason why it's not no-self. The Buddha is not talking about reducing us to a state of people with dementia, of not being able to recollect who we are. But what we get with this notion of sanya, which again, we can't literally control what is within our memory, can we? Things Things pop up. Memories surface. Certain things you want to remember disappear. We have very little control over that memory function. And yet we place so much importance on it in the sense of who we are. So this is another extremely important dimension of our experience, our perceptual, discriminatory um, functions which are actually beginning to see a world, relating it to the sense of self within that. One other function, this is a function which is known as sankhara, This is a function of, literally the word sankhara means to be formed and forming. And it really relates to the world of habitual responses. Can be good and bad. They don't all have to be bad by any means. But they're, if you like, functions of habit which are allied to the other functions. So we have habits of discrimination. We have habits in some senses in Vedana. We certainly have bodily habits. And these functions of, of Sankara again are changing. They're being formed. It's a process of basically projection and introjection. They're formed. We have them. In fact, actually habits often get identified as being us. Yeah. If you've ever had that thing where somebody will come up to you and say to you something like, nothing really serious, but something like, do you know you have that little irritating habit? Do you notice how defensive you feel when somebody does that to you? You might even say, well, that's the way I am. (laughs) Or that's who I am. These little habits. So we put so much sense of identity into the habits that we have formed. But habits change, usually to the annoyance of your partner or spouse or whatever. Those habits change. The likes and the dislikes change. So they're forming as well. They're not just stationary. I could say an awful lot more about this, but I kind of just want to give you a little picture here of this. And then finally, one other dimension of our experience is consciousness. Now, that sounds like a really good candidate for for self, doesn't it? My consciousness. In fact, the Buddha is asked one time in the early texts, he says, you know, is this who you are? Is this what transmigrates? Is this what is reborn? And the Buddha says, absolutely not. Consciousness is, is not yourself. In fact, consciousness 
in a way, is nothing without an object. It has no object. If it has no object, it doesn't arise. It only arises in dependence on an object. In philosophical terms, we call this, uh, there's a different use of the word, but we call it intentional consciousness. It intends an object. It's related to an object. So consciousness and object are interrelated and rise together in our experience. And it's a bit like saying, well, actually, is there consciousness without an object? Here's a question for you. Is there consciousness without? And can I be conscious of without being conscious of something? And an object here doesn't have to be microphone, clock, you know, um, jug, or anything of that sort. It can be a thought, a feeling, a fear, a wish, which are constantly arising as we know. This is one of the things we get to introspect. So in this notion of what or who are we, how are we, we have five different functions. In later Buddhist thought, just slightly after the Buddha's death, this gets even expanded and broken up further and further so that what we have are processes which are interrelating. So we have five candidates, none of which are under our control, because consciousness is only arising when it has an object. The objects are not under our control. If you've noticed, you can't stop a fear arising in your mind. It will arise, and you'll be conscious of it. Just as equally, you can't necessarily control that mind. One of the wonderful things you discover, both in MBSR, MBCT, and the sorts of things that we're doing here, is that your mind has a mind of its own. It goes off. It will pick up objects. Your ear consciousness will pick up sound. You know, that's a conscious registering. And now I might be trying to, you know, to look at the stream of what's going on in thought, but then there's suddenly a sound and I'm pulled out by it. There's very, very little control in that. So consciousness and our perception of things are, again, constantly moving, are in flux, unstable, impermanent here. So all of these five candidates are impermanent, they're changing, they're not under our control, none of these are under our control, and so therefore might be, in a sense, implicated in what we call our notion of a self, but are actually not self. None of these are actually our self. Later on, this gets broken up even further. So, you know, consciousness, for example, just to, to give you a very quick example, gets broken up into 121 different forms of consciousness, yeah. which arise with 52 different mental factors. Yeah. Now, just think of the permutations of 121 and 52 that you can have. It's an awful lot of states of mind. Yeah. And that's what some of the earlier Buddhist psychologists attempted to do, was actually to map out this notion of who we think we are in terms of consciousness and these mental factors arising in these different permutations. So rather than being a fixed self, what we've got are these... Let's just stick to the five. I'm not going to go into the 121 and 52. But if we just take these five, what we've got are five processes. The process of materiality, of being a body, of physicality. 
the process of Vedana, arising and falling, pleasant, unpleasant, neither, both physically and mentally, you know, arising in different patterns. The constant arising and falling of perception. Yeah. The constant formation, reformation of habit patterns, just to use a, a very kind of common term to distinguish this. And in relationship to this all is the arising falling of consciousness. Yeah. So none of it is permanent, none of it is fixed, none of it is stable. This is, the Buddha is saying, in a sense, who you are. When we start to look at this even a little further, just perhaps through the lens of that more complex version, well, when we start to look at thought, which often we identify with, we take on board as being ourself, that self which we establish and take these thoughts as being us, actually are nothing other than the arising of consciousness with mental factors, and they're falling away. Are happening again and again and again and again. This process is so going on so fast, it gives the appearance of stability. Just like the mind gives the appearance of a degree of stability, and we think the mind is a thing. Yeah. We tend to think it's a thing because it's going so fast. It's a bit like a piece of cinema film being whirled through a projector. It gives an image. That image appears to be stable. But all it is, if you like, is something whirring very, very fast. The same with our sense of self. This is a little picture of how the Buddha thinks we are. Now, this is to be investigated. Yeah? This is to be investigated. In my own initial training, um, we had to do a little experiment. This was actually with one of the Dalai Lama's tutors. And we did it for weeks, actually, of trying to find ourselves. Yeah, good, good one, that. You know, he said, okay, engage in this sort of thing. Is yourself your big toe? Good investigation, that. Down to your hair follicles, down to every bit of your body that you went through. And we did this for weeks, <laughs> going through this idea of, is the self this? Is it this? Or is it, is it this? And I, I must admit, I got a little irritated by this <laughs> at this stage. And I, and I said to him, um, why are we doing this? <laughs> you know, we seem to be doing the same thing again and again and again. And he said to me, he said, well, you know what it's like. It, you know what you like when you lose your purse? I said, lose your purse? What are you talking about? <laughs> He said, well, what happens if you lose your purse or your wallet? Don't you look in every possible place it might be until you, found out you find out eventually that you've lost it? <laughs> the serious part about it was that was what we were engaged in. Actually, this is the experiential dimension of inquiring to see if we can pin down this unchanging self that we seem to be so attached to. That sense of ourself. What we discover instead is process in that inquiry. Now, it's a very artificial inquiry, but there are other inquiries as well. But we can inquire into our experience, and what we will see 
when we start to inquire into this experience is that it's not fixed. It's not fixed as I. It's not fixed as me. And whatever comes under its orbit is not fixed as mine. In fact, this is one of the almost recommendations that the Buddha gives in order to say, look at experience, that this is not I, this is not me, and this is not mine. As a way of beginning to release our sense of always placing a self in the centre of our experience. Now, coming back to that more commonsensical notion, this is what we're doing. We're placing the self in the centre of our experience. The Buddha gives another lovely simile. He likens it to a, a dog being tied to a post. And what the dog does is run round and round the post. Can't go anywhere else. That's all it's doing, is running round and round the post. The post is the self. When we have this fixed notion of the self, who we think we are, we run round and round and round it. It limits our possibilities. It limits the ways that we can approach things. It limits our relations with others because we're tied to a notion of who we think we are rather than a notion, and this is very important, I'm sure you will have gathered this from what we've been talking about and everything Chris and Christina have already said, not just who we are, but who might we be. What are the sense of our possibilities that might unfold from this. Now, the Buddha is very, very strong on this notion of self. And I only read you a, a very small portion of this. He's very strong in how debilitating it is, how destructive when we place the sense of I always there. You know, it's like an I first, I second, I third. You might get a look in later. Yeah. Right in the centre of our experience. Iris Murdoch has a very lovely phrase. She talks about the great big fatless, fat, restless ego that sits there right in the middle of our experience and blocks everything. So actually what we're doing most of the time is actually staring into ourselves, not actually seeing others, not actually being engaged with us. The kind of image she gives is we occasionally go and peer around the corner. There's others out there. But otherwise, everything is about me. It becomes about me. And this is what the Buddha has to say about this. He said, Bhikkhus, monks, or just plain practitioners here, I am is a conceiving. I am this is a conceiving. I shall be is a conceiving. I shall not be, is a conceiving. Notice those just ordinary locutions that we use in English. I am, I shall be, I shall not be. I shall consist of form, is conceiving. I shall be formless, is a conceiving. I shall be percipient, is a conceiving. I shall be non-percipient, is a conceiving. I shall be neither percipient nor non-percipient, is a conceiving. Conceiving practitioners is a disease. Conceiving is a tumour. Conceiving is a dart. Therefore you should train yourselves thus. We will dwell with a mind which is devoid of conceiving. And it means the conceiving of the I am in this. 
And he goes, like, he repeats that kind of formula for all of these, but I shall only give you the kind of headlines as he goes through it. I am is a perturbation, an agitation. I am is a palpitation. Yeah. I am is a proliferation. Yeah. And actually one of the things that was mentioned the other day, papancha, proliferation. It's one of the nodes or one of the main areas around which our thoughts circulate is the I am. There are other areas which are views you know, and craving. This is around most of our most of our papancha is situated, but particularly around the sense of I am. I am is a proliferation. I am finally is a conceit. And when the Buddha speaks about a conceit, he generally speaks about the I am being at the, 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 at the forefront of our experience. And he says this, the I am in conceit runs something of this nature. I am better than. I am worse than. And I am the same as. Yeah. That covers most of the I ams. Yeah. I am the arrogance. This is subtle. This is not... This is not simply self-view, which is much, much more manifest, much more obvious, much more in our experience when we take up a view of who I am. You know, it's actually the bit that I started off at the beginning with. Who do you think you are? How do you think you are? Who do you think you are? What do you think you are? You know, that's the self-view. I am this sort of person. I am that sort of person. I never do this. I always do that. Notice how partial, even if we gave a complete list, if I got you to do a kind of little survey here, you know, I'm good at this, I'm bad at this. At best, it's a fiction. It's a nice fictional account of who you think you are. If you did a little example of that. I'm this, I'm that, I'm good at this, I'm bad at that, I like this, I don't like that. Notice how this defines us. But this is all self-view. This is the viewpoint we take on ourselves. Notice how limiting it is as well. The kind of closed down possibilities. I never do that. I always do this. Have you ever... No, I don't suppose you have. You've never uttered those phrases, have you? (laughs) It's it's self-limiting. It's collapsing down. It's, It's actually... Um, holding us in a particular space. But the I am of the conceit is much, much more subtle. It's that subtle sense of superiority. It's almost like saying, well, I I don't do it that way. And there's a kind of little frisson there, isn't there? I'm just mm, poor, deluded little person there doing it that way, and I actually do it this way. Yeah. I am worse than the establishment of our sense of being that actually you've got things so much better. You had so much better opportunities than I did you know, to get where you are and to do what you're doing. And notice how, in a way, it's a kind of inverse of the arrogance. You're establishing your sense of being by feeling inferior, lesser than. 
And then is what I call the, I, the conceit of the I am the same as, which is the sort of conceit of mediocrity. Yeah. We're all the same, aren't we? Yeah. Just look at them doing that, just the same as I would do. Yeah. No hope for any of us, we're all the same. It's that subtle, subtle sense of conceit which control our actions. So these subtle conceits, deeply buried, are con- you know, controlling our actions and our positioning and our relations with others. Finally, the I am here, the, the, the blockage, is actually cutting us off from others. I'm going to go back as we finish this to where I started. Remember at the beginning of this little talk, I was saying, actually, one of the ways we find ourselves most strongly in this world is in like and dislike, in desire, for example, and repulsion. Things I don't want, things I want. We really find ourselves established in those, really strongly. These actually cut us off often from others. The negative viewpoints that we take, you know, in the languages of the early tradition, you know, the, the positive virtues are that which bring us out of ourselves. Yeah. Karuna, which is usually translated as compassion, is derived from a root which means to do and to turn outwards. Yeah. This is compassion. I don't actually like this word. I call it generally translated these days as outgoing kindness. But to be outgoingly kind, you've got to see others. You've got to turn away from self-centered neurotic desires, neurotic problems, and actually literally turn outwards to see that others are there, suffering, having problems of their own, having distress, in order to even enact kindness in this world. We have to turn outwards. The word metta, which is this word that we've been using, has an adhesive quality which takes us out of ourselves and binds us to others. It makes this movement out. I mean, you can't capture these in English words. But this is the function of them. Whereas, actually, the negative dimensions which are associated with self such as anger miserliness conceit these are all turning inwards so there's a different directionality in this there's that which brings us out into the world and then that which takes us back into the world so notice when there is anger often we're collapsed into ourselves literally full of ourselves So the practical dimension of understanding this is to make a movement from behaviours which are dominated and centred in desires and negative qualities such as anger which literally isolate us from others and keep us rooted in self-centred behaviours. Now, this is not to abolish the self. It's a very useful thing. <laughs> this is not to abolish it, to get a, do away with it, to say there is no self. But it's about the ways that we hold our sense of self, about the ways that we relate to others with our sense of self. 
not to be fooled even by the language that we inhabit, because often that is reiterating a sense of self, simply by the way our language forms. Have you noticed? You can't really form a proper English sentence to say something about yourself without putting I am in there, or I of some form. Yeah. So much so that um, the philosopher Wittgenstein once said he thought that the, the, the notion of the self was merely a grammatical error. Yeah. It's simply a product of the languages that we inhabit. You know, that, for example, I am happy. Really what I'm saying is, or what we're perhaps saying is, there is happiness here. There is happiness as a process going on. Sadness around at the moment in time. But to form an English sentence that makes any sense, I have to say I am I am happy, I am sad. So it's subject and predicates here. But notice how suddenly we want to hold on to that sense of the I am and establish ourselves there. Have our being centred within that. In doing that, we close our relationships down and we close off our possibilities of being as well. So the whole investigation, the final thing I want to say, the final... The whole investigation into the notion of the self is to bring us out into the world in engagement. But it is an investigation. Now, just to the expediency of having to speak in this way, it sounds a little bit more like a doctrine, but it's not. It's a practical investigation that we can engage in, in looking at these thoughts. Are these me? Is that sensation in the knee me? A variant of the sort of thing that I was doing all those many years ago in going through the body, going through all the processes to see where that self is. Perhaps we might, and just final quote, perhaps we might have a sympathy with this. Um, the short story writer Catherine Mansfield was, said she was very perplexed. I don't know if any of you have read Catherine Mansfield, but she was very perplexed, she said, by this uh, notion of being true unto yourself. She said, when I look inside myself, what I find is I feel like a concierge in a hotel with 100 guests. This is how we often are. Hence the reason why, just a final connection, the reason we use that poem in NBCT and NBSR, the guest house. Welcome your guests. Don't let them stay too long. Because they're not you. Okay, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.